My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right, and we're back. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morellis. Uh, this is our 49th Prison Post episode from the video cast. Uh, I'm here with my co-host for the day, James Willock. Together, James and I served 50 years uh, in prison, in California prison system. Something that's really interesting is that me and him got, got to go back last week, actually, for the second time. James and I for the first time, right? Yes. Into CSP Solano. We're going to be taking a vision um, vision casting goal setting program that we we run back into there and so James for he's been released to two years ago and for me it's been three years and five months and we're going back inside and it's an interesting experience and so talking about experiences we have um, an amazing author on with us today Lauren Kessler and I came across her book it's called free um, six lives two years six lives and the long journey home uh, Lauren is an award-winning author of 10 works of nonfiction. I think you've written more books than that, though. Is that right? That is true. Yeah. And all of which combine lively narrative with deep research and in-the-trenches immersion. I love that, immersion, to explore hidden worlds. So the creator of two graduate programs as well. Laura, uh, Lauren is a creator of two graduate programs in creative nonfiction, she founded a writer's group for lifers at a maximum security prison. She lives in Western Oregon. And not only is she the author of the book here, Free, which I encourage you to get. It's available on Amazon. Um, but also the author of another book called A Grip of Time. And maybe we'll have some, maybe we'll grip time to talk about that book as well today. She also has them in the background there of her, of her office. So I can't wait till I have a, a, a library like that in my own office. So I'm a little bit envious. Yes. <laughs> But welcome to the Prison Post. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with the two of you. Yeah, what it just from your experience of um, working with incarcerated individuals, um, I didn't see if you were ever incarcerated before. Can you share I that? have. I have never been incarcerated. Okay. Um, but so many people, I mean, there are so many millions who have been, it is not unusual at all to say what I'm going to say, which is I know many people in my life who have spent time inside. Right. It's actually pretty common nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of the things um, that we shared with you before the show is that James and I share, uh, James much longer than me, 29 years and 21 years. So 50 years of incarceration experience. And it's actually a 49th episode. James is 49 years old. And, uh, <laughs> but what, what do you, what do you hear when, and it's ain't about us. We definitely want to highlight your book and your story, but what, what sticks out to you when you hear that 50 years? Uh, well, it's a half of a century is, the, is one way of looking at it. And it's, um, I mean, it's no news to anyone who is listening to us or watching us right now that um, the United States incarcerates not just an enormous number of people, but for an extraordinary length of time. Um, Absolutely. 
And, and so um, the, the six people who let me into their lives to write about reentry in free mm-hmm. um, all spent, I think one of them was 34 years inside mm-hmm. and the rest of them were uh, 28, 27. Um, one, one of the people um, had been in and out like, sort of revolving door in and out. And I'd really like to talk about her and why she's different than the rest uh, when we get to that. But yeah, a a lot of years. The length of prison sentences is um, astonishing and ghastly. Yeah, and then um, when we go before the parole board, a lot of times the denials are very long. And James and I have had this conversation and maybe right before we get to the book, I could ask, you know, like for me, 21 years. And now I look back and James, 29 years. Does that feel, does it feel like it was a dream? Does it feel like it really happened or sometimes? And, and, but I mean, there's so much trauma, so many challenges when you're coming out um, and so much years that have just been taken off your life that um, you can't, you know, you know, it's reality. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Lauren, what is immersive journalism? I love that immersive. I feel like I would have not made it in my freedom out here if I didn't immerse in having to learn new things real fast. So I think I know, but I'm, but I'm, I've never heard the term before um, studying on you a little bit. Well, so I think um, when you, when you pair it with journalism, when you think of journalism, you think of journalists as observers, you know, so journalists go to meetings or they go to events or they sit in front of people and ask them questions and they, they observe. And that's, um, and, and asking and watching are two important ways of getting information. But, mm. but getting inside, whatever the inside is, is different. And so that's the immersion part. It's not just standing on the outside and looking in. It is going inside. And if we're talking about prisons, I, I did not get myself incarcerated to write either of the two books. Um, but I did spend a lot of time inside with men and women who, who were incarcerated. Um, but you place yourself inside the world that you want to try and understand. I'll give you an example from uh, a couple of other books that are very different from the prison books. Okay. Um, one is um, a book that I wrote about people who suffer from uh, Alzheimer's and I, I wanted to explore that world, not the, not the disease so much as sort of the culture. I mean, do you lose yourself completely? Are you no longer a person when you have dementia? And so what I did um, was, of course I did all of the standard stuff of doing all the research, but then I took a job um, and they knew that I was doing this. I wasn't undercover. I took a job as a minimum wage caregiver um, at an Alzheimer's facility and took care of men and women who had the illness and was there for you know seven, eight hours a day being there. And so that's immersion. Um, another <laughs> immersion is uh, I joined a professional ballet company, which mm. is about as different as anything else, um, because I'm fascinated with people who give up their lives for their art. 
Um, and, and with professional ballet dancers, especially women, they often give up the chance to have children because it comes at the wrong time. Um, and they're ruining their bodies, frankly. I mean, they all know that they're, they're going to suffer from various kinds of, you know, arthritis or whatever for their lives after they're, after it's finished. So who are they and why do they do that? Um, so that's, those are examples of immersion. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um. I just love it so much. Um, you know, me and Rich are, are both big, big readers, so I can't wait to dive into all your books. Um, but mm -hmm. what I've noticed about certain books is when I was incarcerated, I, I read a lot of books by people who were talking about prison, talking about um, incarcerated individuals and the problem, right? But they were studying it from afar. So they had a, a certain view and you could get something from that, but your way of immersing yourself in it, um, I believe you can tell a story and tell people's stories so much better and it's so much more impactful. So thank you for that. And you know what? It's, it's, I mean, yeah, I am the narrator in these books, but the people who are telling the stories are the people in the, they're, they're their stories. You know, I, I have, you know, a platform that they don't have with grip of time, which took place inside prison. Um, there was, it, you're voiceless as you guys know when you're in prison. Um, and so I could be their like megaphone, but it's them talking, it's their stories, it's their writing. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, the credit is to the folks who trusted me enough to allow me into their lives, wow. especially with free, because as you guys know, and maybe you want to talk about it, but the first, I mean, the first day, the first week, the first year, whatever, it, it is just such a all involving shock. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, wonderful, exhilarating, but also just, uh, you know, what, what do you do? How, how do you position yourself? How close do you get to somebody to talk to them? What do you say? How do you make choices in a grocery store? You know, I mean, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. It's just uh, overwhelming. So to be able to be allowed into that time with these six, yeah, we, we lost that for a moment, but we're back. Well, Lauren, um, I, I want to say that um, definitely me and James will share a couple, a couple of experiences, but, um, we had a coach go in, go into Soledad prison probably for seven years, probably at least one, sometimes one day a week, sometimes three days a week. He invested his life in us. Most of his thirties, I was in for all my twenties and thirties. He invested his life in us and, um, I'll all, he'll always have a special place in my heart. And so, although the story and the stories in your book are about them, you also immersed and, and taught, went into the prison to teach poetry or, or writing, right? I did. I did. And, um, so I, uh, I was, a there, there was, um, there were people who were professors who were going in to teach classes and that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a writer's group the way that you would have in the free world. And um, so I came in as a volunteer. I, I was trained as a volunteer, um, and I came in as a volunteer and started this group. Started with three guys. It was a um, max, maximum security, obviously all male. I mean, not obviously, but it was all male prison. Mm -hmm. Started with three guys, 
and expanded to 10. Um, and we wrote. I came in um, for about three hours or so um, every other week and started with a prompt, generally some big word like privacy, um, friendship, love, um, I mean, a big one like that. Food was always a good one to write about. <laughs> um, and um, then people, then everybody wrote. And it started out being uh, like a five-minute free write, and nobody wanted to stop at five minutes, so we just continued. Um, and these were real stories. These these were not, um, uh, this is not fiction. This was nonfiction. And then people read out loud, and I used those, those times for like teaching moments, because I am a writer and I do teach writing. So we would talk about, you know, what image really worked there or how you could be more specific about something um, or how you could move something faster or it was moving too fast or, you know, writing kinds of, um, writing kinds of lessons as we did that. And I should say at this point, because I want to brag on these guys that um, some of the, None of these people, one of them considered himself a writer before. None of them else, none of them really did. But the writing got to be so good and it moved from the prompts to bigger and bigger and bigger that the second year that I was, um, as a volunteer, we entered to the uh, Pen America Prison Writing Contest and the men won a first prize and a, a second, a first prize and a second prize. Um, and that was out of 8,000 people. Wow. And then the second year, uh, two other men won uh, 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 another first prize, or first place, I should say, is about first prize, first place, and a uh, honorable mention. That's amazing. Uh, again, people who are not writers to begin with, and you, anybody can go to um, PEN America online, mm-hmm you have that kind of option and look they were uh, 2018 and 2019 winners um and they're That's amazing awesome. students. Yeah. so well we at solidad we also had uh you know a writer come in and we started a creative writing class there mm-hmm. and i was part of it and similar she would come in and give us prompts and we would write and she would teach us some styles and you know um, way to put um, essays together, so on and so forth, and even huh. books. However, um, what I got out of that was because, like you said, some of the prompts were real, um, like prompting you to really write about something deep. And so I got some healing out of that, and I mm-hmm. got um, some of the other men also. So did you experience that with, with the guys that were writing, that they got something out of it, like uh, some healing or some freedom? Freedom, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, thank you for um, for bringing that up. I was so intent on bragging about the <laughs> about winning that really I overlooked um, the major thing that you're talking about. So writing is a way to um, to process what's in your head. It's it's a way to think on paper, and it's it's a way in, it's a way to revisit what has happened to you and to make sense of it. So it, it is, um, 
I think all writing is therapeutic, whether you think it is or not. So absolutely, writing about those incidents that were happening to them and around them was um, deeply emotional and therapeutic. Um, it's also, you know, there, there was a connection too um, between the or among the men in the group, uh, a way to talk about things, sort of a way to talk about things that maybe they didn't naturally talk about out in the yard or just, you know, in, uh, so it, it promoted um, it promoted that as well. But, but yeah. writing is kind of a therapy, it's, it's really therapeutic and it is freeing, right? You can be free inside your head when you're, when your head and your body are not free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't found, uh, well, my experience of prison wasn't one where like vulnerability and tapping into emotions is, is acceptable. It's not the normative. You always put up a facade and wear a mask for the most part. And to get into the writing groups, it's like a, a, a sense of freedom. I always say I had to get free on the inside before I could be free on the outside. And so that was that, that there's a, I wasn't in the creative writing workshop, but I love to write. And, and, um, it, it, it was, um, freeing in the sense where you could say all the things that you couldn't say in the prison. And to speak to, I want to ask you about that diverse group of, or the people that you, that are featured in your book, but to speak to the point of what it was like for, you know, our, our experience getting out and just those, the challenges of reentry. I remember sleeping in my first uh, week in the transitional house that I was at, the room was like pitch black. when, When it was time to sleep, I couldn't see my, my hand. They turned the lights off and I had a roommate and, and I remember my heart just beating because for two decades, I had never slept in the dark. There's always some light on. There's always some CO hitting the pound in the door at night to move your leg, move your arm, let me make sure you're alive. Like, really, do you got to do that every night? But there was that experience of darkness. And I couldn't sleep well. I couldn't sleep well for the first week. Or I went to downtown Sacramento and saw all the big buildings and all the colors. And it was an overflow of... Um, I don't know. Is this? A, I've never really been someone who experienced too much anxiety, but I think I felt it that first time. Or my mom's driving me on the way home, and the road was so bumpy. I was like, "Is there something? These are really bad roads." And she was saying, "No, these are just roads." <laughs> and she yeah. took me to the ocean. The last one I'll share is took me to the ocean, and she says, "I just want you to run." And my feet were so so white because I'd never taken off my feet for twenty years, my shoes and socks, except on concrete um, for. 20 years, 21 years. So to my feet to feel sand and rocks, it hurt. And my feet were super, super like a ghost, right? And then my mom's like, I want to see you run. I'm an old Rocky fan. And she's like, just run like Rocky ran or Rocky won. You know, just, I just want to see you run without any fear of anything. And then she just, we just embraced and we hugged. And, and it was as if she was letting go of all the pain and all the drives and all the stress and mistreatment and all those years, she was wanting to be free of it. And, and I've had the guilt of putting her in the situation where she had to feel that. And we just fell apart on the beach at the ocean. So those are some of my first experiences. And I'm so curious to learn about the people featured in your book and theirs, but James, do you remember a couple as well? Yeah. Well, mine's was a little different. Um, it was total dark in the room. However, um, because they didn't have room at a transitional house, um, when I was released, I had to be in part of a SLE, a sober living environment. 
And so they ran it a little differently. So it wasn't, I did have a staff member come shining a light mm-hmm. in my face. Um, so it was almost like I transferred um, and I was in a room with four other people. That. Yeah. And they, they were snoring real loud. And so I couldn't yeah. sleep for other reasons. Um, but yeah, so, so that was my interesting thing. And um, another thing that stood out to me as part of that experience, um, when I first got out, they um, typically let us out around six, seven o'clock in the morning here. So you can have time to travel throughout California and get where you need to be. And then maybe ch- uh, check into your transitional house um, the next day. However, when I was released, they didn't let us out till late. We had some things planned. Um, and I called my, my parole officer thinking, hey, I'm going to be you know upfront and responsible and call him and tell him what's going on and ask him, could I have a couple more hours maybe to check in and he threatened me and told me that if I didn't get there by a certain time, I, I'd be in prison um, by that night. So I was real worried. And so we drove straight to the, um, straight to the, um, well, I met up with the guys at, at mm-hmm. the gym boys and we had some tacos and then um, they dropped me off at the transitional house and, or the SLE. And when I knocked on the door, the guy didn't know who I was and why I was there. And so this is the staff member. So now I'm panicking because my PO had just told me that if you don't get here by this certain time, you're going to be back in prison. And so I'm like, man, what do I do? So I started calling, you know, the agencies and all that. And um, they told me just stay there, you know, and they worked everything out. But mm. I was like, you know, I, I, I was in tears. Like I was so scared after 29 years, I was oh, yeah. going to go be, go back in at night and I didn't even do anything. Yeah. 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 Well, huh. I, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, I mean, uh, this, there's so much, I mean, I do know what to say. It's just that there's so much to say. Um, I think that when people who um, have not, people outside of the world of criminal justice reform or who don't really understand and who just read something, they think that the biggest challenges facing people after incarceration are getting a job and finding housing. And I'm not, and of course those are very big challenges and we know about the obstacles and the, and some of those obstacles are horrendous, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the kind of person that you have to become when you're inside to maintain sanity and to be safe and that, as as you were saying, Richard, earlier had to do with not showing vulnerability um, and, and all sorts of other ways that you modify who you are and maybe even forget who you used to be. Mm-hmm. And then you come out. And so the... Um, you know, think, I don't think anybody would think about sleeping in the dark versus not sleeping in the dark. Or one of the men that I um, that let me into their life in free is uh, about six foot four, six foot four and a half, and he had been in for twenty eight years, and he had not slept. And of course, when he went in, he was he went in at sixteen, so he wasn't six foot four and a half when he was sixteen. What was his name? Sterling Cuneo mm-hmm. is his name. Um, he when he he slept in a bed where his feet were not hanging off the bed and it kept him up for nights. And I mean, he could, he, his body didn't make sense in a bed that was now the correct size for his body mm-hmm. because he had been, you know, in, in a bunk, not for a six foot four and a half man, which is the same kind of thing you're talking about with the dark 
thing. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of like little details to the way life works that other people wouldn't even think about um, are, are, are what may, or would cause that kind of stress. Um, the, Absolutely. The, the other thing I was thinking about was um, when you are, uh, when you go into a, like a halfway house or what you were talking about, or a um, wraparound services, transitional housing, it is, um, you are case, I mean, the ones that I know about, you're case managed and you have random UIs and you, um, somebody shines a light in your face and you have curfew and that kind of stuff. So in, in one way, like you were saying, it feels like you just went to another facility, but in another way, maybe it's like an easier transition, you know, because you're not thrown into, you know, it, it, there's, there's something normal. I mean, not normal, abnormal, normal about your experience. So it's um, of the folks in the book, they're, are at least one of them who spent three months in a um, transitional housing and um, ha and felt like he was still incarcerated in a lot of ways with curfew and you know being case managed. But then there were ways like he could go out and take a bus and go places. He could go to Starbucks. He could obviously he was looking for a job, that kind of stuff. He learned how to use a computer. So it was kind of a slow, transition did you did you get did that feel better for you in any way or did it just feel constraining i'm wondering um so a little bit of both um because of the way they ran their facility um some of it was a little traumatizing like you know they would put us all in one room we couldn't leave until we um you know gave them a test um just uh, just we and we didn't get to go out um they were on complete lockdown um, oh. Yeah, and so I didn't get to go. My family or whoever could come, just drop something off and then leave. Um, and so it was a little different. Um, but I also could have a cell phone, um, and I could sit out in the backyard um, when they weren't running mm -hmm. classes, and I could talk to my family, and I could FaceTime. Um, and so for me, um, I felt more constraint. But however, some of the other guys that had got out and got out at the same time and were at the same um, place with me, um, I believe it was a good move for them um, mm -hmm. because they weren't like as far along as I was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Definitely. Lauren, tell us about some of the people featured in your book. There's a diverse group of people. Um yeah. Can so, I ask you about one, one, one first? I don't know who are you going to talk about, but I want to hear a little bit about Belinda if you get an opportunity. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I will. Thank you. Um, so the, um, and, and Belinda actually isn't, Belinda is what made me want to write this book, mm. but she's not in the book. And um, so I will, I will just say that um, when she did, I, I wanted to be part of her life. I wanted to help bend to her as she um, left prison because I had met her in prison. And um, when she, and when that didn't happen and I, and I just, I, and we lost touch with each other, she lost touch with me. Um, it, it, be, it just compelled me to want to know what that journey was like for people like Belinda. So 
Um, so that's the part that Belinda plays. So these are six people, and um, they are four men and two women. Um, I would have liked to have it be equal, but in fact, there are so many more men incarcerated than there are women that it didn't, in this case, it didn't make sense to have it be equal. Uh, white, black, and brown. Um, and I wanted to be part of the lives of people who'd spent a considerable amount of time inside. So I, I really didn't reach out to people who'd been, you know, in a county jail for a couple months or who had maybe like a, a five-year prison term. Right. So all of the folks had been in for quite a while. Um, the one who I was talking about previously, who was at a, um, a transitional housing for three months, he had been in for 34 years. And um, I think what what's really, really interesting about him is um, when he when he went in, um, it was at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, and he was a closeted a, a, a deeply closeted gay man from a, a, a rural community, um, and then when he came out, there was same sex marriage and men and men were holding hands walking down the street and women and women were holding hands walking down the street. It was like he had to, he had to learn for the first time how to be who he, who he knew he was and had to hide for most of his life. And that's boy, <laughs> that is really, uh, that was an interesting and it's, it's ongoing, but it was really interesting. Um, yeah, it's a whole nother culture. It's a whole yeah. nother culture. Yeah. The um, of the two women um, who I who let me into their life, one was I, I believe this is still a record that she holds, although I'm sure she doesn't want to be holding this record. <laughs> the youngest person ever tried for murder um, and incarcerated as an adult in the United States. She was 13. Oh my God. Um, and uh, had she ever gone to trial? she wouldn't have spent all those years because there was a, as people will read in the, uh, in the book, um, not that, not the committing violence against another person that there's an excuse for it, but there's always a backstory yep. and backstories and mitigating circumstances are enormously important to understand where people are. So she didn't get a chance to, to make that, uh, that case. Um, uh, so she was 13 when she went in and 31 when she came out. The other woman um, is the only one of the six um, who had not committed a, a violent offense. She committed a number of paper crimes to support um, a, a double uh, drug habit. And of all of the people, nobody has gone back to prison. Of And this is now, I mean, the book came out a couple of months ago. Um, but of course it took a year to write. So it's now, you know, a, a while since mm -hmm. these folks are out. So nobody has recidivated, That's but right. the person who has had the most problem is the person who actually was in prison the least. And that is the woman I call Vicky, who is the uh, addict. And it's, 
absolutely because of drugs. I mean, it is just, um, that's also a separate culture. Um, and it, although you can certainly get drugs when you're in prison, I don't have to tell you guys that, um, it is easier to be clean when you're in prison. And then when you go out, especially if you are released to your old place with all of the triggers and your street family, how many times does a person have to be triggered until they, you know, until they fall? And um, so that it's been a really, really tough road for her. Um, I am her, uh, I'm, I'm her mentor. And so I speak to her and see her quite a lot um, outside of the book. Um, yeah, the, and of the six, let me just think, I think possibly five, no, four of them are like the two of you um, giving back to the incar- incarcerated, uh, to to the incarceration system and criminal justice system by the work they have chosen to do um, in in terms of um, social justice movement work. Um, so that is, I mean, that's what's absolutely needed. People who um, have the lived experience and have the connections and have the credibility with those inside. And so four of those folks are making their careers in that way, as you guys are. That's awesome. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to point out was I what you said about the person who did the least amount of time or or even the paper crime and um I've seen that as well. And I think I think what happens like for me and James, we were there for violent crimes when we had to earn our freedom. It's almost like you have to live um and maybe we did it in the beginning, but at some point if you want to go home you have to toe the line and, and, um, or, or you won't. And so you have to earn it. You have to go in there and prove that you're able to speak to being accountable, being responsible, um, you know, empathetic that you've tapped into the thinking pattern or belief patterns that led to your incarceration and that, and also how you've transformed and how you're not going to fall on fall back into that again. And yet there's a disconnect with the legal system, legal system out here because they, when they want to do prison reform in general, it's for the short term people, yeah. the, the paper crime, the, 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 dr- the drug offenders, <clears throat> rather those who are offending because of drug abuse rather than the long term. uh, um, the person sentenced to long, uh, long amounts of time, even though the recidivism rates are far lower, especially if you toss in, you know, writing workshops and a college degree and a bachelor's degree, you know, you're talking less than less than two or three percent. And um, so that's kind of frustrating in some of the different policy conversations we've had. But it sounds like you you're still in touch with them today. What you did the book start while they were on the inside, and then you followed them afterwards in their freedom. Um, for some of them, yes. And the the last scene in the book, so that I had written the whole book, um, and I had thought at the very beginning that um, I would. That Sterling Cuneo, who's the character that the the uh, man that I talked about, who was too big for his bunk, um, this the book opens with uh, 
a, a scene that he is part of. And I had thought way back then that it would close with Sterling getting out because he was um, he had a very complicated case, but it was looking good. And all through the book, you will follow bits and pieces of this case. And then I wrote the whole book. It was, it was getting ready to be processed. I was going to say at the printer. So I was getting ready to be processed. And um, Sterling got a commutation. And um, I rushed up to the prison and um, watched him come out the gate, which is one of the, I mean, it was a, a really this is a man I've known for seven years. So this was a big deal for me. And obviously a much him and his wife. Um, and so I, I called my publisher up and I said, essentially stop the presses. <laughs> we, we have to have this last scene. So um, I, I uh, followed him all the way through his, um, through the, those years of his incarceration. Um, I, Let's see, I'm just trying to think of uh, two of the, one of the other guys uh, was in my writing group. And so I knew him while he was incarcerated and um, he came up for parole as you were talking. You come up for parole and that doesn't mean you get parole. And generally you don't the first time or possibly the second or third time. And you're flopped for two years, three years, maybe even more. And that's what was happening with him. So yeah, so it's, the short answer is a few of those folks I knew inside and was able to be there right then when they got out. And some of them, uh, and two of them I met after and then just sort of backtracked through them uh, to, to find out uh, you know, what that first day or week was for them. It's amazing. What were some of the challenges that you write about in the book that they experienced? Like we could talk about some of the challenges we experienced, but what were some of their challenges that they experienced um, after that amount of time? And and I want to say thank you too, because there's sh- for sharing some stories about people with some who've worked on themselves, who've done some work for their personal transformation to not recidivate. Okay. That's the, that's the goal. We don't want, want folks to go back and we, we don't want, those who fall, go back and make choices to go back into addiction to go back either. So we need to change the game and get, get them help in there as well. And that's part of the reason why James and I are going back into Solano, because we believe that it all starts with the beliefs and the thinking. Um, that said, there's so many shows out here. Like um, I, I think we're speaking about earlier, love, not us, but um, in previous <laughs> conversation with um, love after lockup. And, and shows like that where it seems like they find the most untransformed people. And then, you know, there's a stigma. And that's how we all are when we come out. And it's not, it's not, that's not always the case. I know there's some out there that, you know, they, they could care less and maybe they won't commit the worst kind of crimes, but my God. And I mean, that's, it's, it's annoying to me as coming out because 95% of the people I know that are coming out are not like that. Yeah. So that said, thank you for these stories. And There's such a stigma too, since you mentioned about uh, the love thing, for women who um, marry incarcerated men, uh, either either married before incarceration and stayed with the guy, mm-hmm. or married when because they met somebody in prison. And either way, it's like the women can't win. Mm-hmm. It's um, like they're if they stayed married, it's um, it's sort of this 
self-sacrificing, saintly person. And, but meanwhile, they're probably getting something on the side while their Mm -hmm. husband, I mean, there's that kind of stuff or people who get married. I mean, why would you marry somebody who's incarcerated? What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, and two of the people in the book, uh, well, I'm sorry, one of the, one of the people um, was married while incarcerated and one was married very soon after. And it was really important, I think, to tell those um, love stories because they're not the, uh, you know, trashy stuff that you see on, uh, on TV. Right. People fall in love. People fall in love and and people fall in love for all kinds of different reasons. So yeah, I mean real stories is what we want, not what you know, clickbait. We don't really need that kind of garbage. So Right. Yeah, so you asked about the the um, challenges, that, challenges that you from yeah. from that you learned about from them following in their them and their freedom. Um, the, their reentry challenges, like a lot of our audience are family members and loved ones of the incarcerated and they wonder, and they, they, we have, even with us, we had this idea. I had this idea, James, you could share too, but, uh, on your experience, I had this idea that, um, okay, I got through the first six months, you know, I'm out of transitional housing. Now I'm working and, um, you know, got an apartment, but now after three and a half years, now I'm married homeowner, got a, a career, community service, friendships, all of my friends that I still hang out with are only former, formerly incarcerated people sentenced to life. Okay. And I, I have, I, don't, I just thought about that on the way over here. I'm like, I haven't even had a, like a want to make new friends that weren't sentenced to life because I'm content with the friends I have and pretty mm-hmm. busy with family life. But is that a result or, and then also, you know, juggling everything. I feel like I'm at a, I'm having more challenges today after three and a half years than I did in the first six months because it was all cookie cutter approach on do this, do that, do that. And now I'm navigating all of my bills and investing in 401k and family. And, and I think I do some impressive things, but my wife's more impressed with us doing cleaning the garage together and doing yard work together. And, and I got to discover what's her love language and what's, and that's gotta be, that should be important to me. I want it to be important to me. And, um, she wants mine to be important to her. So, um, you know, it's a whole nother level that, and I think that when I was, if you would ask me what I have these challenges before I got out, I would have said, nah, I got it. I'm going to be fine. Uh, I had this, all these things were totally out of my awareness. Um, and, um, so it's naive to, it's to think that you're going to, you have it figured out once you get out, there's challenges you won't, you can't, cannot even anticipate. Uh, But I have to say that that's like what life is for, uh, everybody, whether they've been inside or not, it's naive to think that you'll get it figured out. I mean, I remember when I was younger and I thought when I'm 21, uh, I'm going to have it all figured out. And then, oh, well, I guess not. When I'm 30, you know, well, after I get settled, after I have a career, when I own a house or, you know, any of those sort of benchmarks, then everything will make sense and everything will be easier. And um, actually life is, I mean, you don't learn from a place of comfort. You learn from a place of discomfort. And I don't mean that in a painful way, but I mean, if you want to keep evolving as a human being, then you um, keep meeting those challenges. So not to say that there aren't 
very specific and more challenges if you've spent time inside, spent a lot of time inside. But I appreciate what you're saying. I just think that um, people who don't have that experience should understand from their own experience how navigating life is difficult at, at any moment. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's uh, there are those benchmarks like um, I want to get out of transitional housing and get my own place. I want to you know, have a job with a living wage. I want to be able to make good, decent decisions that come from my own person, not because I have to check boxes for because the PO said this or because right. you know, like that. And, and that's um, all of that is really important. The whole, you know, people talk a lot about technology. And to me, I think that's kind of the easy stuff. You know, most of the, everybody, except for uh, Vicky, who had been who'd only spent, I think, seven years at, at one time, and then she'd be out, and then she spent five years and be out. So she was never she was never inside for that long a time that she lost touch with the internet <laughs> or a cell phone. Um, but that's kind of learnable, you know? So it's a device, and it's confusing at first. I think what's not, what's more confusing is how much, how quickly you can get information and how we're in a swirl of information in our as swirl of decisions that is quite different than being in a um, constrained life where the, the number of decisions you get to make are pretty minor and they're not about big things. Um, and they're not really about things that affect you. Like when can I, you know, where could I live? Who could be my roommate? What could I eat? When could I eat? When do I go outside? I mean, that sort of stuff. You don't make those kind of decisions. Out here, everything is a decision. And and I think that's one of the things that everybody, all of the six people said about how overwhelmed they were with the number of decisions that now, because you guys have been out for a while, you don't think about the tiny decisions Right. One of the, the, the 13 year old girl who was the 31 year old who came out, she had been looking forward to um, a meal. So she was picked up by her by her family and they stopped for gas someplace and they went into a 7-Eleven and she spent 40 minutes looking for a candy bar. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, me too. exactly. Right. Because that's so, that's overwhelming stimulation. Yeah. You know, or one of the guys who got taken to a restaurant with some formerly incarcerated friends, and this is going to be a big deal, and be handed a menu after mm. 34 years and being asked, you know, just being asked what he wanted or how would you like your eggs? I mean, it's, it just like floors you. you just does, he just was didn't know what to say. So other people had to make the decision for him. So it sounds like you had the same kind yeah. of experience. No, we did. My first couple of times going to a restaurant, it was just too, too much. Um, even like with the coffee, like, you know, it's, it's all these things, a hint of this, a, a sip of that, a drip of that. I'm like, you know, <laughs> just, uh, what it, so I, I would just ask everybody, what, what do you, what do you drink? Or, or what do you, what, what do you, what yeah, are you having? I, I had the same thing. Yeah. Um, until, yeah. Until I, until I learned, 
But I, I love what you're saying because like there are like the challenges that a lot of people, if not everybody will face the same challenges, but like transitional housing, clothing, um, there, there, there are certain things that a lot of people will have those same challenges. Um, and, and so those are talked about, right? But some of the things that are not talked about, and that's why I'm excited about me and Richard um, going back inside mm-hmm. and spending time with people that are getting ready to transition back out here is like which, the trust, right? Um, yeah. For, yeah. for to be in there, first of all, we, we can't trust anybody, right? Because everybody, that's the first thing when you're arrested, your, your lawyer will tell you, don't talk to anybody. Right. Don't don't talk to anybody. And so you, you that's what you carry through your whole time in prison. Then you don't trust the um, the guards. You don't trust, you know, um, the board. You don't trust anybody. Right. And they check on you. You don't have no control. So then when you come out and it could be in a relationship and um, your significant other asks you um, where are you going, but you're triggered to be like, hey, I don't want a warden, you know, or this. So it, it, it's hard mm-hmm. to. Yeah, Those are the yeah. type of things that, that that people will struggle with and, and that they're not aware of. Or you feel like your your integrity is being questioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. advise families to take people to Walmart right afterwards. Uh, <laughs> no, or Costco. Uh, Costco, Walmart, <laughs> Sam's Club. Like, just, just get I, them. I, uh, have, <laughs> I have trouble in those places. So. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, that's. That's really, I mean, I think tr- the, the whole trust thing, one of the, um, one of the people in the book was talking about, as you said, Richard, not having friends who weren't, uh, weren't incarcerated. And one of the things she said is, um, well, if I meet somebody, I mean, she does, you know, you go out into the world and you might have a casual conversation with somebody and it's, it's like, do you tell them right away that you've been inside? And if you, mm-hmm. no, you don't. And, but if you don't, and it becomes, and you, and you meet again and you have the beginning of a friendship, then it's like really awkward. When do you bring it up and how do you bring it up? And it's not that you're ashamed of it, but it is, um, you know, somebody will casually say something like, Oh, did you move here recently? Or, you know, some kind of question just off, just a casual question that means you have to say something about that part of your past. And do you want to, do you want to trust that person? Is that person going to be part of your life? And so it's easier in a way to just stay with people that you don't have to, you know, you don't, you have a foundation with, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to go back to that. And she said that there was some, uh, another uh, woman that she was, became friends with at the work that she was doing and she had to break off the friendship because she hadn't told the woman about her past and now it was too late mm. and now it was like she was being sneaky about not having told her mm. and there, there was no good opportunity to tell her and so it was just easier to just not have that person in her life anymore yeah so no. yeah <clears throat> What was the, one of the main reasons, like we speak, we ask a question a lot in our, in our coaching sessions, what's your purpose? What was your purpose? And, um, like, what was the driving passion behind? What was the story behind wanting to write this book and also your book, A Grip in Time? Well, the two, so I, I think that the, um, 
the reason that I wrote free, I mean, there were, there were two reasons. One is as I was um, studying our um, system of incarceration and criminal justice and being floored by the numbers, a number that I was equally floored by was that 95% of people who go in get out at some point. So that's 600,000 people, men and women every year, 600,000. And um, what happens to them? So what we hear about is, of course, it's either the recidivists Mm -hmm. um, or we hear about the rock stars, right? So a person who got out and now he, he or she has a law degree from Harvard and is, you know, whatever. I mean, it's always like the huge success stories or the failure stories. And that's a tiny percentage of everybody. There's 600,000 people. So uh, I, I really needed to find out what was happening um, with, with some of those people. Um, and then the other thing that was Belinda, um, someone that I, um, that I cared about, that I, and, and I, wanted to, I, I wanted to be part of her life after incarceration, and it just didn't work out that way. And, and, and that compelled me to find other people who would allow me to be part so that's where free came from, that notion that there are 95% of people who are inside get out. And to me, that was like, well, I had done grip of time. And so I, I knew as much as somebody who hasn't spent time inside myself, um, what being inside was like. So I, I knew the lessons that had to be learned to maintain sanity and, um, and safety inside. And I also understood and was told, you know, that those lessons don't actually work in the free world. You have to unlearn those lessons. So knowing a little, knowing what was going on inside and then knowing that 600,000 people were being released every year really made me want to understand much more and to communicate to people much more about what that journey was like. And very, very few programs like what you guys are doing. I mean, you can't, you can't talk about reentry. You shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about the challenges of reentry when somebody steps out of the gate. That's not when it should happen. It should happen with folks like you going inside, talking about the um, obvious challenges, the not obvious challenges, having a conversation, being real about it, and having it before people get out right that's yep. that's when the that's when the real work should happen so that's what i'm hoping can happen from from free and from uh, other works like that thank you i yeah. mean that that's just so true um like rich said you know um you can get out um the majority of people i know we we talk about circumstances in our lives that that kick compelled us or triggered us to commit crimes and so on and so forth. However, there's lots of people that go to prison that have jobs, right? And housing, right? And so what was the problem, right? And so it was something else deeper going on, right? And so it's not going to get fixed when they come back out and don't have any time. Because a lot of times you don't realize how much time you have in prison, right? You have time to do everything. You have time. You're all in the same little spot. I could go to his cell. He could come to my cell. We we always see, and that's another challenge, keeping up with friendships and things like that. 
like that out here, right? Because we can work all day in there and then go to sleep and the door's going to open up at the same time. But here we need an alarm clock. We need this, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on, right? But I, I definitely want to point out that I really, really appreciate you pointing out those numbers, right? That so many people get out of prison and the only ones that are talked about because for political reasons are the ones that commit another crime for obvious reasons, right? And then just the, the rock stars, when someone's trying to prove a point about a rock star, but so many, many, many people are out there living great lives, um, contributing to society in their own way, paying their taxes and being good citizens. And those aren't the ones that are being talked about. Yep. And um, Absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, what successful reentry is, is involved, engaged community members that we welcome back into our community. And the, if they if they have kids, the kids go to the schools that everybody goes to. And it's, it's part of community building. It's what we need to do. Um, and I'm happy that there are people who are rock stars. That's great for them. Um, and I am, of course, very unhappy that the system doesn't, the system makes it very easy to recidivate. And I'm not even talking about committing a new crime. I'm sure that you guys know mm. those numbers that they call it the, uh, the myth of the mass of recidivism. How many people go back because they, um, violations. Their appointment, right. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They didn't commit another crime. They was, it was a parole violation and sometimes a, a ridiculous parole violation. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I want to say um, your 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 book and your message today is poignant. At James and I uh, work at Crop Organization. We've been doing this work on the inside and on and on the outside. Now we created what I consider a premier reentry um, organization by proximate leaders, those who have the the experience, those who know the pain points of those on the inside. And folks can come out to Oakland and LA. We're putting out. We have applications on our website where they will have a year of housing in Oakland, um, um, a year of uh, $1,000 a month stipends, leadership development training for three months, financial literacy training for three months, including with live bankers, Google literacy training with, with live folks from Google, um, and then nine months of career training in tech where they can make a livable family wage starting at around 60,000 a year on up and professional workplace skills with LinkedIn learning and connections to careers afterwards with companies like Oracle, Microsoft blend and um, post uh, and housing opportunities beyond that into, um, you know, duplexes or apartments where they will waive the, you know, the uh, rental history, but this conversation is important. I'll close, close with this. We're coming up on time, but because the work is still important for guys like James and I to go on the inside and have the conversations about your reentry challenges. When you come out, you need to talk to somebody when you come out and you feel overwhelmed. The, that stuff has to be a choice that they take so that they don't start keeping it all in and holding it all in and, and have, being tempted by old, old patterns of behavior, old patterns of thinking. And then also for those that are inside of our program, what are the things that you're experiencing that you're embarrassed to talk to people about? Are you, mm -hmm. are you experiencing with fear, fear of the dark or 
um, whatever I, I can think of. I lo- I felt like I lost vocabulary in there. I would, I told someone the other day, what's that thing that goes over a bridge? It goes like, or, or what's the thing that goes over water? It goes like this, and you're like a bridge. And they <laughs> laughed at me, but so I'm, there's a tendency, like maybe I don't say that anymore because they laughed at me, but, um, yeah, d- just to talk to people about those challenges and they have that freedom in that program to do it because that's just as important as the housing and the career training and all that. Yeah. Well, I, so I just have to say, first of all, well, thank you for doing this extraordinary work. I mean, I'm just, uh, just listening to you talk about all of that is just warms my heart and makes me proud to be part of a community of, um, uh, criminal justice reform, restorative justice, um, uh, folks like you um it's such important work it's life work it's in it for the long haul work so regardless of books or anything that you want to say nice about me thank <laughs> you okay appreciate it appreciate it and thank you for immersing yourself in our people and um you're our people too and uh so uh, where can people find your book um, it is um, on Amazon where 75% of people buy books, apparently. Yep. Um, and it should also be, and it's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Powell's.com, the largest independent bookstore in the United States, which is also in the state of Oregon, and and your local bookstore. So anywhere. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Lauren, thank you so much for coming uh, on the Prison Post podcast. We'll be in touch. Maybe you share your story one day at one at, in Oakland or LA. We'd just love to be in conversation with people who who care about our reentry journey, our reentry challenges. And thank you so much for your book. Thank you for coming on the Prison Post. We really appreciate you. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Do good work. See you. Absolutely. Bye bye, Lauren. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. 